stressed. It's easy to get worried. And yet something happens to Isaiah that totally changes his perspective, frees him from that, from that stress and anxiety and the worry. And it's this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah has this prophetic vision, and in the vision, he's in the temple, which is supposed to be the home of God on earth. And, and in the temple, he sees God sitting on a throne. Remember, who sits on thrones? King. The king sits on a throne, right? And what's just happened to the king? He's died, and now there's potential instability, and we don't know what's going to happen. But, but in the midst of this potential instability, Isaiah sees another king on an even greater throne sitting there high and lifted up, exalted. And he's so majestic and so glorious that he has a robe like a king. And, and you know, a, a king's robe maybe has a train to it, like a bride walking down the aisle. You know how the dress drags behind her. It's the train of the dress. A king would have a train on his robe like that. But, but the train of God's robe fills the entire room. It's massive. He is powerful. He has wealth and means. And, and he is high and lifted up. And not only that, but above him stood the seraphim. It's, it's a type of angel. And seraphim literally just means burning ones. So you look at these, these angels and it's just bright. It's like fire. It's the type of thing that if, if one of these seraphim were to show up right here, we would all think like God is here and just fall down on our faces and start trying to worship this thing. Because it's so majestic and so huge. And Yet, despite how majestic and huge it is, in this vision, these are like the servants. God is so huge and so majestic that his servants are so great that we would bow down and try to worship them if they were here. But in God's presence, look what they do. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. Because even though these things are so majestic and glorious, God is so much more majestic and glorious that they can't even look at him. And with two, he covered his feet. That's probably symbolic of the feet being something that's unclean, something that needs to be protected and, and kept away from the presence of God. And then with two, he flew. So these guys aren't just like standing around, they're flying around in God's presence. And what do they do all day long? One calls to another and says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These majestic creatures, so big, so grand, so powerful and amazing that if they were here, we would try to fall down and worship them. All they can think to do is praise and worship God because they are so consumed with how much greater than them he is. And so they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, I know it's this word in, in our culture a lot of times, I think holy gets this connotation of being like boring, dull, old-fashioned, like too good for you. Holy just means set apart. So if you have, does anyone here have like a normal set of dishes that you use for day-to-day -day life and then a special set of fine china that you use if really important guests come over? So that fine china is holy. It's set apart for special occasions. It, it's not as holy as God, but in the same way, God is holy. He is set apart. He is different and distinct from us. And part of his goal in choosing the nation of Israel to follow him is that they would be a holy people set apart from all the other nations of the earth so that when people looked at them, they could see a glimpse of how great their holy God was. And the angels are, 
are consumed with just this idea of the holiness of God. That's why they repeat it three times. In the ancient world, in the Hebrew language, they didn't have the word very. So if you wanted to say that something was like, if you wanted to say Eric is very tall, you wouldn't say very tall, you would just double it. You would say tall, tall. If you had someone who was, was very fat, you would say fat, fat. If you have someone who's very holy, you would say holy, holy. But God is beyond that. God is holy, holy, holy. He's, he's the extreme of holy. He is the ultimately set apart because he is so different. He is so high and lifted up and above us. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah's vision, it is overwhelming, it is powerful, it is majestic. He sees God, he sees these creatures who are serving God, who are also majestic, but are consumed by the majesty of God. And in that moment, as he sees God, all the worry, all the fears about the future, all the concerns about the potential instability of the political situation in his nation melts away. Let me ask you, have you been concerned the past couple of years about what the future holds, about the chaos of life. We just had our second child seven weeks ago. Our life has been chaotic and it's easy to just get consumed in the chaos of what needs to happen each individual day to keep two kids under the age of two alive for another day. And it's easy to lose sight of, of the bigger picture of life and be concerned about the future and what type of a world are they gonna grow up in? Where are they gonna go to school? How are we gonna afford their school? What are they gonna eat for dinner tonight? Because we've just been so focused on getting them through today that we forgot to prepare food. Thank you to all the families from the church who have been providing us with food. That's so helpful. (laughs) But there's so much that's going on in the world. You look at the news and there's just news about countries who are mad at each other. Countries who are upset about the way that different countries are handling immigration in the light of COVID and threats of military action against one another. And it's so easy to get caught up and consumed in worry and fear and anxiety. And what we see in Isaiah is that if you catch a glimpse of God, it changes your perspective on life. If you catch a glimpse of who God is, it changes your perspective on life. Because all these worries that we carry, all these fears, ultimately they boil down to what can we do in our power? How can we make sure that things stay stable, make sure that things stay secure, make sure that things stay okay? But when we get this glimpse of God on the throne, God is the one who's majestic, God is the one who rules over all, we see that he is the one who's holding our lives and the world together. We don't need to stress ourselves out about how we're gonna fix things, about how we're gonna keep things under control, because that's his job. And so seeing God, it frees us from that anxiety. It frees us from that stress. And, and, and it's not just seeing him, but it's seeing him as he is. The, the angels say the whole earth is full of his glory. We talked a few weeks ago, or I guess it's been a few months ago now, about the glory of God. When Moses prayed to God and he said, God, show me your glory. And we said the gl- glory of God is like the essence of who God is. And God told Moses, no one can see my glory and live, but, but I'll give you a little glimpse of a little piece of it. And so God hid Moses in a rock and he walked past that rock and he, he called out his name and he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's the essence of God's 
character and his nature and his glory. That he is not just a God who's all powerful, but he's a God who's good. He's a God who's, who wants to do good to his people. He's a God who, when he sees us struggling and suffering, he's drawn to us. Like when I see my child fall down and scrape his knee, I just want to scoop down and pick him up. That's how God feels towards us. He's, he's slow to anger. He's not quick to lash out at us. He's abounding in steadfast love. It's what just bubbles out over the top of him. Naturally, by default, is love. Steadfast, covenant-keeping, amazing love. And when we see God on the throne, when we see that he has this power and we know that that's the kind of God who is on the throne, it's gonna set us free from so much fear that we carry every day, from so much stress that we carry every day. Because there is a God on the throne and it doesn't have to be you. And the God who is on the throne loves you. He cares about you. He's drawn to you in compassion. He wants to see good for you. And so Isaiah sees God on the throne. He sees this beautiful scene and this beautiful vision and the worries and fears about what's going to happen in his country fade away. But they actually, ironically, fade away, not because he's filled with this peace, but because he's overwhelmed by an even greater fear. We see this in verse five. I said, woe is me for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now remember, Isaiah was a prophet. His job was to go to the nation and speak the words of God to them. His job was to go to the nation and tell them, here are all the ways that you are failing to follow God properly. Here's what you need to do to fix it and find life and peace and abundance. And if you don't, here's the judgment that is coming. But his whole job was to speak the words of God to the nation. We see in, verse, in chapter five, he, he's calling out woes to, to the wicked in the nation. Woe as in like, there's trouble coming for you. And he says this again and again. Actually in chapter five, he says it six times. In the Bible, seven is a number of completeness. So, so we would expect him to be building to something. He's done it six times. He said woe to six different groups of people. We expect him to be building to, to maybe like the ultimate, terrible, worst group of all with number seven. And yet where, where is woe number seven directed? Directly at Isaiah himself. Arguably one of the most righteous men in the entire nation. And what is this woe directed at him for? He essentially says, I'm going to die. Woe is me for I'm lost. I, I'm dead. I'm here in God's presence. And what is it specifically about Isaiah that makes him feel like I'm going to die? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, do you realize the significance of this, his lips were the lips that delivered the words of God to the people. His lips arguably were, were some of the cleanest lips in the entire nation. His lips probably were, were like a strength of his character. And yet when he sees God, his perspective is so transformed that he sees them as his greatest liability. And I think that shows us something amazing about repentance. We talk a lot here about repentance and faith, repentance and faith, how repentance and faith are are the keys to spiritual growth. Repentance is we're, we're moving in the wrong direction, following something sinful or maybe idols. Repentance is turning from those things. Faith is turning to God. So it's, it's two parts of the same action. It's both turning opposite directions, moving from the things that are harming us and destroying us to the God who gives us life. 
And repentance and faith are the keys to how we keep growing spiritually. The, the Christian life, the way we grow is by continually seeing the things that we're following wrong, turning from them, and trusting in Jesus instead. But what Isaiah shows us here in his repentance is something incredibly powerful and incredibly difficult. And it's this. Repentance for Christians is not only for the bad things we do, but also for the bad heart motivations behind the good things we do. Repentance for Christians is not only for the bad things we do, but also for the bad heart motivations behind the good things we do. See, his, his lips, in terms of his moral character, likely were one of his greatest strengths. They spoke the words of God, and yet he sees them as this weakness. And we don't know 100% the reason why, but I think if you examine yourself and you examine what, what would you say are your greatest character strengths? What you'll find is that so much of the time, our pursuit of these character strengths actually comes from this place of pride within ourselves, a place of desiring to prove to ourselves and everyone around us and maybe God that we are enough, that I've accomplished something to make me a worthwhile human being in the world. I'm a good person because I saw this little old lady crossing the street and knew that she needed help, and I helped her. I'm a good person because I saw a puppy who was just alone and looked like he was starving, and I took care of him and brought him to the animal shelter. I'm a good person because I gave money to the church. I'm a good person for whatever reason. If we're relying on our good deeds for our status and this idea that we can look at ourselves in the mirror at the end of the day and say, I am enough, then even those good deeds are things that we need to repent of. Because ultimately, at the end of, day, uh, end of the day, following God is not about doing enough to prove to him that we're okay. It's about admitting, like Isaiah, now that I've seen God, I realize there's absolutely nothing I can do to ever, ever make me okay. When I, when I take my, my, my best part of my best day and hold it up to the presence of God for judgment, Isaiah says later on in the book of Isaiah that if we do that, our best part of our best day is the equivalent, and this is going to be gross and offensive, but it's in the Bible. It's the equivalent of taking dirty menstrual pads and bringing them to God and saying, here you go. Look at my gift. Don't you love it? Isn't that wonderful? It's offensive because ultimately what God wants is not for us to prove ourselves to him, but for us to trust in him. And so Isaiah shows us that repentance is not just for the bad things we do, but even for the wrong motivations for the good things we do. And notice the other thing about Isaiah's repentance. He throws himself completely on the mercy of God. I think a lot of times we get repentance wrong because we end up trying to turn it into penance. Rather than just saying, God, I've, I've sinned, I've, I've been going this way, instead of following you and turning back to God. We get this idea that, I notice now that I've been going this way. I notice that I've messed up. And what I need to do to fix it is to get rid of these bad things in my life and overcome them on my own so that I am then good enough that God will accept me. And so if we notice that we've been struggling with anger, we say, all right, I need to just go one week without yelling at anyone in anger. And then I'll be good enough that, that I can come back to God and he will accept me. 
because I'll have paid my dues and made things right and overcome this problem that I have for long enough that I'm worthy to come before him. And Isaiah doesn't do that at all. Isaiah says, as I am right now, I deserve death. And now that I see God and I see how amazing he is, I realize there's absolutely nothing I can do to fix that. My greatest efforts for thousands or millions of years cannot overcome the deficit that I have in his eyes. I'm a dead man. And so he throws himself at God's mercy, completely trusts in God to either kill him or save him. And he knows that whatever God chooses, he's going to be right because he has seen God and he knows what God's character is like. And something that you notice if you read through the book of Isaiah is that in the book of Isaiah, anytime people try to exalt themselves, God brings them down. Anytime people humble themselves, God lifts them up. And Isaiah right here, as he repents, he humbles himself. He gets rid of his self-reliance. He gets rid of his, his idea that he can sustain and support himself, that he can make himself good enough for God. And in that moment when he does that, look exactly what God does in verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah does nothing. He says, I'm a dead man. I'm a sinner. And just stands in the presence of God. And God, God does everything necessary to cleanse him. God sends the angel to take a burning coal from the altar. The altar is where they made the sacrifices to pay for sin. And so these coals would have probably had the, the blood of bulls and goats land on them that were for the forgiveness of sins. And the angel takes this burning coal, brings it and touches Isaiah's lips with it, which probably burned really bad, but it doesn't say anything about that here. But, but the fire is a picture of cleansing in the Bible. And so, so God's saying, I'm cleansing your lips. I'm taking away all of that uncleanness, all of that impurity, all of those things that, that you realize now keep you away from me. They're paid for, they're taken care of, they're gone. And they're gone because I have done something for you that you could not do for yourself. It's an amazing picture of, of what God does for us. When we come to him and we say, God, I'm a mess. I'm a failure. I've screwed up too bad for you to ever love me again. God doesn't look at us and say, well, you have a few more years to fix it and pull yourself together before you stand before me on judgment day. No, he comes to us in our brokenness. He brings us healing. And he does it not just through taking an, uh, a coal from the altar. He pays a much higher price. Because ultimately, our sin and rebellion is something that needs a price paid for it. The price is death. That's, that's what Isaiah realizes here. He stands before God and he says, I deserve to die because of how messed up I am. And that's true. He does deserve to die for how messed up he is. And we deserve to die for how messed up we are. And yet, the beauty of God is that he sends his son Jesus to come to the earth to die in our place and set us free. So when we repent, when we, when we look to God, when we see how amazing he is and we see how broken and utterly deserving of death we are in comparison, rather than saying, yep, you're right, you're done. No, he looks at us. He sends his son to us and his son says, my blood has been poured out for you to rescue you to make you white as snow, to make you clean again. 
And when you trust in me, I take all of your sin, all of your uncleanness, not just the bad things you've done, but the bad motivations behind the good things that you've done, and I remove them from you as far as the East is from the West. I set you free. I don't wait for you to prove to me that you're worthy. I make you worthy. I make you enough. Enough so that you can stand in the presence of God with confidence and joy and hope and be accepted as a beloved son and daughter. Seeing God's glory leads to repentance, but repentance leads to rescue and faith. See, the story of Isaiah doesn't end right there. It continues. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. God doesn't just save Isaiah for the sake of saving Isaiah. He saves Isaiah for the sake of preparing him for a mission. And if you are a Christian, that is equally true of you. God did not save you just for the sake of you being able to be a Christian and and enjoy an individual one-on-one relationship with him. God saved you for the sake of sending you out on mission to the world. Because his goal is not to save individuals. His goal is to save a people of every language and tribe and nation of the earth. And so he commands each of us to go, to be his messengers who bring his good news to the world around us, just like Isaiah. But again, just like Isaiah, for us to be equipped and prepared for that mission, we need to see God. We need to repent. And once we, once we actually see him, once we actually repent, once we actually believe that he has forgiven us, not because we've earned that forgiveness, but because he showed us completely undeserved rescue and grace, that's what equips us and empowers us to step out and share the gospel with others. The word gospel, this, this message about Jesus coming to rescue us and save us and give us a new life in him. The word gospel literally means good news. That's what we're saying when we talk about the gospel. We're talking about the good news. I don't know about you. I love sharing good news with people. If I find some new like electronic device that's awesome and makes my life so much easier, I want to tell all my friends about it so their lives can be easier, right? If my sports team does something great, wins a championship or makes a trade for a great new player, I want to talk with people about it because I'm so excited about it. And yet how many of us feel that excitement when it comes to this amazing salvation that God has offered us? How many of us look for opportunities actively to bring it up in conversations because We just can't help ourselves because we're so excited about it. I confess, I don't do that anywhere near enough. And if I'm honest, it's it's probably because I don't fully understand how great news this gospel is. On a day-to-day functional basis, I don't feel that reality, that, that God is up there on the throne, completely in charge of everything, and he is good. And I, in his presence, deserve death, but he has rescued me. He's given me life. But if I did get that, if each of us got that, It would transform us in the excitement that we feel to go out and share this good news with others. God has put us here in Tung Chung as a church because he has a a mission in Tung Chung. He desires to see people in Muntung and Yatung and Futung and Yingtung and Tung Chung Crescent and Seaview Crescent and the villages and coastal skyline and Caribbean coast and the visionary and CenturyLink, all these places, he desires to see people know him. And in order to help people in all these places know him, you know what he did? He brought you here. Because each of us, like Isaiah is sent to Israel, each of us is sent to the places where we live, the places where we work, the places where our kids go to school, 
the places where we hang out and have fun and eat. God has a mission for us. Until we understand the beauty of the gospel, we're not going to engage with that mission. But once we understand the beauty of the gospel, we are going to engage with the mission and not just engage. I think a lot of times when I've heard people preach on this passage before, they stop right after verse eight, because that's exciting. Here I am, send me, I'm going to go, I'm going to do it. But the entire rest of the chapter is interesting. God just tells Isaiah, you're going to go and no one's going to listen to you. You're going to spend the rest of your life preaching to people who are stubborn and stiff-necked and don't want to hear any word that you have to say to them. And they're going to ignore you. And they're not going to listen. They're not going to turn to me. They're going to end up having their country destroyed by judgment. How do you feel about that as a calling for your life? (laughs) No, I'm not interested, right? But that's what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't just give us that initial shove out the door to go try this once when we really understand how amazing God is, when we really understand what he has done for us, that it's all him, that it's all grace, that it's nothing we've accomplished for ourselves, but it's completely a gift. It's gonna give us endurance and perseverance to push through the hard times and keep going and stay faithful to our God in the midst of difficulties because he stays faithful to us. You know, I think looking at the end of this chapter, And all of the failure that God says Isaiah is going to experience is difficult for us because we equate success with results. If you run an event, the more people that turn out, the better you did running that event. You know, at the end of each quarter in your business, you can look at the bottom line and say, did we make money? Did we lose money? We have a clear sense of how successful we have been. And God tells Isaiah here, your success doesn't depend on that bottom line. You know, in a season like COVID where the bottom line has just been so out of control, isn't that comforting to you? In a season where it just feels like all the things that we look to to measure our success have just vaporized, God looks at Isaiah and he says, look, the results aren't going to come. If you stay faithful, that's success. If you keep going, even though everyone ignores you, if you keep going, even though they make fun of you, if you keep enduring even when things are difficult and you want to give up. That's success. And if your picture of what it means to be a Christian is that this is something I've earned for myself, something I've done to make myself good enough for God, when things get difficult, you're not going to have that perseverance. You're not going to have that endurance and strength. But when we understand like Isaiah that I'm nothing, but God is on the throne. And you know what? Even though I deserve to be crushed like a little cockroach by him, He doesn't do that. He loves me. He actually allows his son to be crushed in my place so that I can be rescued and set free and adopted as his son. That's going to lead us to repentance because we're going to hate the things inside of us that keep us from him. But it's going to lead us to faith because we can't help but celebrate how amazing and wonderful he is. And as we celebrate that, it's going to lead us to mission because we're going to be so excited to share this wonderful news of of life and freedom with our friends and family around us. Let's pray. Father, you're amazing. God, so often in my day-to-day life, I confess that I want to be on the throne. I see a way that I want the world to work, and I fight for it, and I stress about it, and I get anxious about it, all the while forgetting that you're on the throne. So I don't need to be stressed. I don't need to be anxious. I don't need to be worried or afraid. God, teach each of us to remember that you are on the throne. God, my heart has a tendency so often to try and rely on my good works and my accomplishments for your love. But God, there's absolutely nothing 
that I can do to make you love me, and yet you love me already. What a blessing that is, God. I pray that you would work in each of our hearts to fill us with an understanding and a love for that truth. And God, we see today that you've shown us your love, not just so that we can enjoy your love, but so that we can share it with others and more people can enjoy your love as well. I pray that you would make us messengers who are excited and passionate and faithful in sharing the good news about you with those around us, that we would be people who endure in this calling, even, even when we face opposition, even when no one wants to listen, that we would be faithful in sharing the good news about you with those around us so that they have the opportunity to trust in you and find life. God, use us as a church to expand and advance your kingdom here in Tongchang. In Jesus' name, amen.